Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're speaking with George Palikaras. George is the founding president and CEO of MetaMaterials, which is listed on the CSC under MMAT. I reached out to George as I've come to know the Meta story, as well as how George was able to finance much of the R&D and early commercialization of his company with non-dilutive capital. Often overlooked and misunderstood is the opportunity to raise capital that doesn't ever hit your cap table. This can be so important as once a share is issued, good luck getting it back. The point is that there's funding available that won't dilute your shareholders, but you have to know how to go after it. I was very surprised and interested to hear George's perspectives on this, as well as on Canada and the programs our government makes available to research and development in the technology space. George and his partners also made the point of relocating their company to Canada to take advantage of these programs. It's important to note that raising capital through grants, government agencies, and even partner organizations doesn't come without a lot of work and risks. There's a significant level of due diligence and scrutiny required but this can also provide valuable validation for conventional debt or equity investors. The point is, there's no such thing as free money, even from the government. That said, millions of dollars are available for the teams who demonstrate their potential. So in this episode, George and I discuss how he's been able to raise millions of dollars in grant money for research, development, and the commercialization of their bleeding edge technologies. We also get into a bit about his company and the power of metamaterials. George explains how he was able to attract and engage major names such as Airbus and Lockheed Martin to partner with and invest in the IP that he and his team have been developing. The work they do with manipulating light and energy at a microscopic level is just fascinating. Enjoy the show. On the line, I have George Palakaris, who's the founding president and CEO of Metamaterials. George, I'm happy we're finally making the time. Corey, it's uh, fantastic to be with you today and looking forward to our discussion. There's a lot of experience that you've had in the 10 years of building metamaterials, and I'm really looking to driving into our discussion about uh, how you've raised a lot of the capital for your research and development. But I think the best thing we can do is start off with an introduction from yourself all about you and uh, your company, Metamaterials. So what do you say? I'll hand it over to you and you can give us some background. Thank you. So I am uh, just George, uh, basically immigrant, landed immigrant. I left Greece, my home country in 99, moved to England where I did all my studies, including my PhD in advanced materials and nanotechnology. I'm very passionate about this field that uh, basically was the vision to commercialize innovations in automotive, aerospace, healthcare, and energy sectors. And as I entered the field, I became uh, an inventor. I worked uh, with entrepreneurial schools and executive business schools to kind of work through my skill set. And I created the Meta, which is today listed on the CSC under the symbol MMAT, double M-A-T. We have uh, been active in the field of advanced materials and we have been shaping and transforming this space with some amazing partnerships globally that have uh, supported us throughout our life and some incredible uh, academic and research partnerships funded by government uh, support as well as uh, some institutional investors who have helped us along the way, we have been able to create award-winning uh, solutions. And some of our technologies today are working towards commercialization and scale. 
Can you clarify what metamaterials are and the applications you've been able to put in place? And what I want to do is basically set the foundation for our discussion here about the different kind of applications and inventions you've been able to build with what is non-dilutive capital. And I think that will set the uh, kind of the tone or the, the understanding of all that you've been able to do with the money you've been able to raise from people who aren't traditional investors. So yeah, can you get into that for us? Sure. So you asked about uh, what are metamaterials. And so I'll take you a little bit a step back and say that almost every great advancement in technology can be attributed to a breakthrough in material science. So from the stone and bronze age all the way to the iron ages, people have been taking advantage of the new tools, whether it was for writing or warfare or even irrigation. They were manipulating the raw materials that were available to them to create uh, their, let's say, specific innovations. Most recently, this has happened through the last 60 years with the invention of the semiconductor technology and the transistor, and we are going through the digital aids. So to explain what metamaterials are, I can tell you that we are in the beginning of a new, what we feel is a revolution in material science, and it's driven by advancements in the invisible world of nanotechnologies. We use software that is coming from the digital aids to design new materials with functions, for example, blocking, enhancing, absorbing light and other forms of energy, and doing that with at far less cost than the competition, using sustainable materials and avoiding the use of, for example, rare earth metals. We are able to create these new materials at a fraction of the cost at extremely high speed. What chemical companies have been doing that takes, let's say, six months, we can do it in a few hours with our design software. And what are some of the applications of these? I mean, I've seen some and I've really been intrigued by it, but it's, uh, I'm sure it's better heard from your, <laughs> from your lips than mine because I'll probably get it wrong. <laughs> So the main thing is the types of problems that we're solving are long-standing challenges. For example, how do you block powerful and dangerous lasers with what appears to be a normal-looking window? This is an application we developed with our first partner, Airbus, a laser-blocking nanostructure film that goes on windows or eyewear, protecting pilots in aviation from these laser strikes. You may have seen this recently in Portland, for example, where protesters have been lazing the police and that's you know something that we're working to solve we have launched products in that uh, category or how do you replace and miniaturize uh, bulky camera lenses you know you see those paparazzis walking around with these massive half a meter lenses well can you take that and turn it into a thin flat lens optic without really losing the performance or how can you trap light in a photovoltaic cell from almost any angle without mechanical trackers pointing the solar panels in the right direction. So this is another nanostructure where we partner with, uh, for example, Lockheed Martin to solve that problem. It, the list goes on and on. We have medical applications working towards uh, non-invasive glucometers, again, using our technology and enabling higher, more accurate diagnostics. And, you know, we have... We see ourselves as an enabling technology for a very large number of industries. What I really like about it is, and what I see from this is, I mean, it's, it's a manipulation of light. And so when you talk about the, the material science and now being able to manipulate light and do it in a way, and I know this is very high level, but in a way that is so thin, so small, and so almost intangible to what is in our daily lives, but has such performance. To me, I find it fascinating. And this grew out of your experience and your academic work. What I want to get into is, is really the crux of our conversation is about how you were able to raise capital for this. So if we go back 10 years to when the company started, as I understand, the first money in was your money as founders. 
you came in with your partners and you were able to get the company to a point and a proof of concept on your early work that enabled you to get grant funding. Can you take us back then and let's use that to start into our conversation of how you've been able to raise millions of dollars through grants and other non-dilutive forms of capital? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, you know, things that I learned as an academic, uh, young academic, is that there's always a breakthrough moment in any scientific field. For example, you may have heard about the invention of graphene by one of the famous Nobel winners from Manchester University. Right. And graphene today, you know, is trading in uh, Canadian uh, stock exchange and the, on the TSX as a resource. So for us, for Metamaterials, that moment, that genesis, was a professor at Imperial College in London saying that you can bend light perfectly around an object, which is basically the Harry Potter cloak of invisibility. <laughs> so this is happening in 1999 to 2006. This genesis creates the field. And every year, they were rewriting the books of physics or at least adding chapters to it. So as a young uh, engineer and academic, I felt, you know, this was very exciting. So I naturally was attracted to see and explore what this technology could mean for the future. And instead of just sitting and observing, I wanted to be a part of it. So as we went through the work, I started discovering massive gaps we could design new materials at very low cost, but then the designs needed to be manufactured at scale. And this is where there was a big gap. The big traditional semiconductor companies, whether it was Intel or applied materials or you know, 3M, etc., they had existing technologies, existing products, but with legacy manufacturing techniques that were not suitable for the field of nanotechnology. So what happened was you ended up saying, do I sacrifice my performance of my unique design and get something more like a vanilla design or actually go and invent something? So how do you invent? There are professors, there are academics that can help you create something novel, something new, but there is a lot of risk associated to that. And that's where we started looking at sources of funding, but more importantly, partnerships with the right academic partners to advance, not the design, which is what we held as our own IP, but the actual, how do you manufacture this at scale? How do you commercialize it ultimately so that you can you know, create some revenues and so on and so forth? So that is how we ended up looking above and beyond our own funding of how do we bridge this risk that we had identified that we could not find suppliers that could build what we were designing. And just for the, you know, just to give you an idea, our highest record to date is a 40X, 40X improvement on what was a legacy technology. You cannot achieve that with, you know, without spending money. And we had uh, found incredible partners in Canada. So our business started in London, England. We moved our headquarters and our operations to Dartmouth in Nova Scotia within a couple of years of our start. And the reason is that we found an incredibly competitive advantage. Being headquartered in Canada gave us access to a very wide range of grant, loan, and other types of support from the Canadian government in partnership with some of the top universities in the world, access uh, to talent, both locally that we can actually hire or via our university partners that we can actually consult with. That's kind of the beginning of this work. And so you were able to raise millions of dollars, as I understand, and perhaps you can frame that up for us. But then I'm also, I think it's really interesting the amount of due diligence you would have done in pursuing the right country. Because from our previous conversation, we discussed how you'd looked at multiple different countries as places to go to 
pursue the research and development of the design you had, but you chose Canada. So can you tell us how you raised that money and, and also like how it was really incremental and what you learned in, in incrementally raising that capital when you went through the, the R&D phases? Yes. You know, you mentioned millions. It started actually with a, just a, a mere $5,000 initial grant that even did not even come to our company. It went directly to uh, one of our professor partners at the time. But before I get to the large amounts, I can tell you that it was difficult, you know, choosing where to expand to, a place where we could call home. We looked at the United States, naturally Boston and California as the two ecosystems. We looked at Switzerland. We were in the UK. I think Switzerland came close, but Canada had something that nobody else had. It was a combination of the available funding and the fact that the talent that exists around the world, the PhDs all around the world, they care about not just having a good job. They care about gaining uh, citizenship one day and becoming a Canadian citizen has a huge amount of merit in where you place your business. It's an attractive tool that is pretty unique. You know, you see what's happening right now with the United States and our friends across the border are having an extremely difficult time. There was an executive order that stopped the visa for the scientific staff. This is a fantastic opportunity for Canadian, especially high-tech companies to attract the best talent from across the border, but also to recruit from across the globe. So we felt that we had not only a unique advantage, we could partner with the government, both locally, but also internationally across you know, a number of fields. And well, that's what we did. We started with the NSERC research grant that was given to our partner. It was called NSERC Engage. The Engage program was, I think, about $40,000 initially after the first $5,000 was to build a prototype with uh, Atlantic Canadian uh, uh, University. This money did not hit our balance sheet, but it was uh, the first real collaboration that we had, and we maintained our IP. This was a, so unique. You know, most people feel that if they work with universities, their IP is at risk. So for your management audience out there, I can tell you that there are ways to protect your own business ideas and maintain your IP position. And there are universities that respect that. That's actually a really good point. I think there is some kind of belief that if you're to engage with universities and you're to do work and bring your own, how do you say, designs and, and IP to that institution, that they start to get a, a piece or they're able to take what is the hard work you've done and have say on it or call on it. How does that play into this? And I mean, how did that play into your decisions? And then how does that also work with another aspect that I'm curious about of bringing in commercial partners to help build on the work you've done, both from a design and, and a kind of an academic research standpoint? Yeah, excellent question. I can tell you that protecting your IP, you know, obviously, you need to make sure you have a good uh, legal advisor, especially on IP matters. Our strategy was simple. Patent first, our idea, then approach the academic partner. Doing so meant that the academic partner would be working around executing on your idea rather than creating new IP that would contaminate your idea or perhaps give them an advantage. Now, in cases, this is not, you know, every case, you may actually get a fantastic idea that maybe is even better than yours. We welcome that. We would have licensing, you know, on such ideas, and there would be some upside that you could negotiate for the professors involved and the universities involved. And again, choosing the right university, each university has its own unique aspect of how IP is handled. I recommend, again, to management and other investors to really spend time and looking at the tech transfer offices of each of the universities in Canada, because that will tell you the level of industry savviness that they have 
and it varies from university to university. So your second question, if you can repeat that again just quickly. Yeah, I think we're going down the path of commercialization. Yes, yes, the industry partners. Industry partners. Right. This was the key for us. When we came to our academic partners, we already had a strategic investor slash partner slash customer, which was Airbus. This made everything easier because there was a very high profile company that was involved. It gave us leverage in our negotiations with the academic partner. But most importantly, it made the government, when they were reviewing our proposals for grants or other types of investments, like including loans, I can mention, for example, the Atlantic Canadian Opportunities Agency, which is a federal government body in, in Atlantic Canada that's helping drive economic development. We had a small loan called the BDP, Business Development Program, for $250,000. And without having Airbus as our anchor customer, they would not have taken the step to offer us investment. So having an industry, having a real problem that you're solving with real market potential and the credibility that your partners are bringing to the table, i.e. Airbus and the academic local partner, made ACOA trust us. We were a foreign company at the end of the day. We just landed from England, but they were able to see that, okay, there is a business case, there's a problem we are solving, and here's some you know, additional investments. We use that money to actually create more prototypes, and so we spend it locally with universities, and we made sure that our position, especially our IP position, was maintained. It stands to reason that being able to approach any funding agency with a you know a global partner as an example of being Airbus that gives you a huge leg up and i believe or i know that you've worked with a number of other massive names how have you been able to work into these other organizations where you were able to establish a almost an r&d slash commercial relationship as i understand these start to play a part in other forms of funding for you. Basically, the customer is funding the research and development through your talented hands. I can tell you that I always say it's not about the size of your company, but it's about the size of the problem that you're solving. So, you know, large corporations have technical challenges that their internal teams either don't have the capacity or the knowledge to solve. But they do have typically innovation scouts. They have, they're looking for solutions. And some of them have startup programs, especially in the last 10 years. So they're looking for ways to innovate and work with small and medium enterprises to solve and outsource, as you said, the partnership of sorts with R&D in mind. And what happens is we position ourselves. So we go to the trade shows. We you know, showcase through our website what we have to offer. And I guess we put ourselves at the right place at the right time. Sometimes there's luck involved. We have been very capable of, uh, for example, one of our biggest programs was with uh, Lockheed Martin, and it's related to solar. It's about how do you capture the sunlight from very wide angles of incidence. You know, you see solar tracking on trackers because you want to maintain the light as perpendicular to the solar cells as possible. But if you have these solar cells on, let's say, something that moves, a car or a plane, well, then you cannot really track. So how do you maximize the efficiency of that cell? And these are things that we have been working on. And so we started pitching in certain competitions and we started connecting the dots and we were successful. Now, This resulted in a $5.4 million project with Lockheed. What we did then, we had now an industry partner, Validation, as I mentioned earlier. We went to SDTC Canada, Sustainable Development Technology Canada, and we applied for a $17 million total project, five and a half from Lockheed, 5.6 or so from 
equity partners, investors, and the rest, about 5.3 from the Canadian government as a grant. It was one of the hardest and largest projects that we have ever applied for. And the level of scrutiny was such that the due diligence was able, that the government did on our project, you know, used uh, PhDs from the solar industry, et cetera, who really spend a huge amount of time interviewing not just us, but our customer about the merits of this business case. This uh, product is still in development, has not finished. We're doing uh, very well in, in terms of milestones. But the key here was that the government doesn't just give you money. You have to have a very good business plan and a very solid technology that has to be globally competitive. How do you determine competitiveness? Well, do you have IP? But it's not just patents. Do you have processes, know-how? Are your patents granted or are they just pending? So there's a lot of boxes that you need to tick. But we took about five years to get to that level to be able to get that kind of project financing. And one of the big things for us was the government, any support we could get from the government, validated and de-risked in the eyes of investors who were not, you know, PhD holders, that, well, there's been so much scrutiny. You have a Lockheed Martin investor and partner. You have the government who looked at and scrutinized your project. It is perhaps now safe enough to get some equity investors in the mix. And we did it in that order. First the customer, then the government support, then the community of investors. It's an interesting one. And I want to reiterate what I'm hearing. And one is that it's the customer validation that is so important for attracting the government dollars. And then the other piece there is what you're, I think you're making very clear is that there's no free money. You still have to jump through a lot of hoops with these organizations, these granting or funding agencies. But if done well, you can have access to what is millions of dollars and then follow that. Also, the validation or the, um, I guess, the credibility that comes from for investors and now you know equity investors, if you will, that you guys have been vetted by some of the brightest minds in the world. This isn't just a, you know, a quick and easy uh, shred claim, if you will. Yes, so I have um, an opinion about shreds. I can share that <laughs> later on. <laughs> and I wanted to see that because I am, you know, it's, shred claims are something that I think, you know, they are valuable. There's money there, but they're often talked about. But you have an opinion, so I did want to tease that one out of you. So please sure. tell us what you think. So I can, before I, you know, get to that about the shred, I can say that going through these programs, you know, it's not easy. You have to be prepared to be audited maybe three, sometimes more times a year. Now, for a public company, that's not an issue. You know, they get audited every quarter. For a private company, it's a big issue because you're not really used to or you're not sometimes set up for audits. So early on, we took the step and became IFRS compliant even though we were a tiny little company, because we knew that if we would handle public money, taxpayers' money, we had to be super clean and super transparent. We built that as a core value, transparency. We were basically running our company as if it was a public entity. We ended up being and becoming public, I think, perhaps easier than, you know, from a volume of work perspective, we had everything in place. Uh, this is an important lesson that, you know, if you're going to enter the game or become, you know, an applicant and expect investment from the government, the government has the right to check up on you anytime they wish. Are you creating the jobs that you promised? Are you spending the money where you are supposed to? So the level of responsibility on our shoulders increases. And that means that, you know, it's another I would say qualitative aspect of investors looking at companies who have received, for example, investors from SDDC would know that to get SDDC funding, it's extremely difficult. I can't tell you the statistics and probability, 
But there are other programs, for example, the Super Cluster Initiatives in Canada is one of the most incredible programs that the government has ever done, $950 million to support different supercluster initiatives in ocean technology, in advanced manufacturing, etc. And so that drives economic, basically the economic competitiveness of Canada across sectors, brings partners together, and you can get 50% financing if you have an innovative product that is also collaborative, that involves more than just yourself. And that's where I would mention the shred kind of opinion. Shred is a very esoteric program. You know, if you are creating, let's say, a new type of icing for your cappuccino, you could actually qualify for Shred. You know, you're doing something innovative. You can claim that this was a, a whole new recipe with a whole new chemistry and qualify. It doesn't mean, though, that you have the kind of quality. It, of course, gets you more money. It, you know, gives you some additional funding. Where is the validation? You know, there is an audit that takes place, but it's more of a quantitative audit instead of a qualitative audit. And that's really something that is missing. Build on that. I mean, it is in essence a return of money and it puts money back in the, the bank account, but it's based on research and experimental development and you have to prove where you failed. So you failed at creating a viable form of icing for the cappuccino that is different or novel. But like, I think the point that I'm hearing here is that it doesn't lead to a validation for equity investors or third-party investors because basically you're just proving that you failed. Whereas other forms of grant money that comes in through other programs are so deeply scrutinized that it really adds to the validation that you can take forward when speaking with investors. Yes. Simply, you don't need a business case formalized and vetted to get thread. So you can spend your money, you can have a plan, but there's nobody to validate that this plan is the right plan. And, you know, you can still get the shred. And that's, most companies are very responsible. They don't just do that for the sake of getting shred. I'm just saying that when investors look at shred, they should see beyond, you know, the shred. What about IRAP and other funding methods out there? So IRAP is... uh, we have only used it once. We had, at the right time, I think it was uh, extremely helpful. It paid between 50 and 80% of our R&D salaries for a small team that we were at the time, about five people in R&D. We never used it again. There's a mix of success between, well, if it's Atlantic Canada, IRAP, uh, there's a whole different approach. It's not standardized as much as I would wish. But IRAP is one of these incredibly focused investments. So they look at smaller, more frequent projects, and they can be accessed by anybody that is trying to improve a process. And so they're, I would say, looking for very much incremental performance gains. So if you have a, let's say, staying with a coffee analogy here, if you have a cappuccino machine that makes you know, 10 cappuccinos an hour, you can go and get an IRAP and get that to make 100 cappuccinos in an hour. If you go in and say, I need $5 million to create the world's next or best solar technology, they will say, well, this is too blue sky or this is too early stage R&D. We don't finance that. So IRAP has a role to play It is more near-term gains and benefits. They do take into consideration the business case, but there's so many people. It's you're kind of in a, there is a certain amount of money. And my experience has been that the money gets allocated, you know, 1st of April. And by the end of April, it's almost all of it has been spoken for. And that is, you know, the challenge, I think, of that program. Hmm. Okay. And now I want to bring us back to partner financing because I think that that can often be a really powerful way to prove out validation, find that market fit, but also learn from having that commercialized or that uh, industry partner who's you know, got a direct application for the product. 
when it comes to financing through a partner or when it comes to partnering with that partner like a Lockheed Martin, they've got to have a legal team that's a hundred times the size of your company alone. And working through the terms of that partnership and the terms of the capital they'll put in, what kind of gotchas are there or what kind of lessons you learned and would you want to share about how to do that properly? So when it comes to the partners, I think each industry has its own uh, gotchas, let's say. So they act differently. So if you're working with automotive partners, they want all the IP to be shared amongst everyone so that they can create as wide supply chain as possible that drives the prices down. So they can force you to, from the get-go, that you know if you deal with us, it's a reverse exclusivity. If you do a deal with us, nobody else in the world can get exclusivity. So it's almost the opposite of what you would think. Most people want exclusivity. So the automotive industry works the opposite way. Aerospace, they want to be fully exclusive. They want to be first. So what I noticed is that the best way dealing with this let's say, you know, 800-pound gorillas is to make sure that you have a few other 800-pound gorillas in the same room. (laughs) So I would go and bring as many competitors as I could so that I have some leverage and create a balance that I have something to offer that's so unique that is attractive to your competition. And therefore, if you want to do a deal with us, you know, let's keep it, you know, safe and a win-win for both sides. And for us, you know, we were choosing the people who, the teams who were most passionate about the problems that we were solving. So we were dealing with a C-suite of Airbus, the chief innovation office. We were dealing with some incredible fellows, the senior position of a scientist at Lockheed Martin. So these were very highly regarded people in their own organization. So we felt that this was there's a top-down support that would allow this partnership to flourish. And then as we were executing, you know, of course, we were treating them more than just partners. We were we felt that the moment that we partnered, this 100 plus you know legal team became our extended legal team because now they were they cared about the project enough to protect it against the competitors who were at the table and they those competitors lost out because we, for example, chose to do business with Lockheed. Hmm. And were there any moments in doing these deals? I mean, as an example, when if you're going to partner up with an automotive company, having to basically open the kimono to the rest of the industry or on the flip side, an aerospace company in direct and and complete exclusivity. Were there any tense moments for you or moments where you, yeah, that really were that game changer or something that had you take a step back and rethink what you were doing? Absolutely. (laughs) The short answer is yes, lots of moments and they're still happening. You know, everybody wants to show value to their manager and their leader so they're always going to drive towards a better bargain it's only human you know to want to be able to win more and it's you know we look for partners that want to have not to overbear a smaller company we are punching above our weight anyways but there are companies that have been uh, working alongside small companies long enough to understand how to approach, how to do and basically deal with such companies. We have been lucky and fortunate. We love our partners. They have been a true blessing for us and we have long lasting partnerships. We have to be very selective. When I can tell you one moment where we, you know, we were sitting with amongst two very large competitive companies. I'm not gonna mention names. And one side said, you know, George, you have to pick a horse. And my reply was, well, there should be a horse in the race to pick between two, because right now there's only one horse. So you have to be able to push back if you feel that, you know, there are 
things that are happening that are too slow. You need to, you know, progress your agenda. Small companies, we have, you know, we don't have billions of dollars in the balance sheet. And the time is not on our side. Time is not on our side. So in order to create speed, you need to make sure that you have some kind of lever And for us, that lever was to have a competitive, let's say, situation between, like I said, uh, more than one 800-pound gorilla in the room. Mm -hmm. You know what's interesting, and as just something that I've learned here, is that with these 800-pound gorillas, these global companies that have these innovation offices and and even you know startup incubators built within them, you did make the point that to a degree they understand those departments, if you will the smaller companies and partnering with smaller companies and what's needed there. They can't apply the same negotiation tactics and force and use the same tools that you would if you were doing a multi-billion dollar merger. You have to approach things differently. And I'm hearing that some good companies, good partners approach things that way versus as if they were just doing another acquisition. Absolutely. They create, for example, Airbus had the program called Startup to Partner. So basically, they were creating almost like an intrapreneurship within Airbus, and they were our champions, were Airbus people, and they were helping us connect to the right business unit and helping us through understanding the corporate complexities within a big organization. Other companies, even locally here in Canada, MDA, which is a, a Canadian success story that has been recently been repurchased by two billionaires, including one of our local heroes, John Risley, they have accelerators. And this is a space company. So from anywhere, you know, from automotive, whether it's Honda in California, who has an accelerator or a advanced materials company like Solvay and so many examples I can tell you of large corporations who are attracting and accelerating companies, but you have to realize that you are one of many and every year there's another 10 that come behind you. So you need to have something to offer that is globally competitive, solving a real problem. Otherwise, you know, you're just marketing. At some level, there is marketing involved. So don't get me wrong. They have a stringent, you know, let's say, scouts are looking at specific problems that they want to solve, but these are big companies. They're trying to solve maybe a thousand problems. And if you can solve one of them, great, you can progress. But they're making bets and you need to, you know, you need to step up. I find it really interesting, your approach here. And one of the things I want to come back to is that is coming back to Meta and your company and the work you're doing now. And, you know, I thought it's a, it is a really interesting example of thinking about solar panels and what you're doing with Lockheed Martin in the sense that solar panels usually very specifically positioned to the sun to capture light at the right angle. But if you have a solar-powered bus or solar-powered car, it's not always going to be facing the ideal angle. And part of the solution you guys are building out, as I understand, is to continuously capture light through the use of metamaterials. So those, I'm not too sure of the name, but the photovoltaic cells, if you will, are always in the right position. If that's an example of some of the work you're doing, what I really want to do is bring it to where you are now as a company and some of what we can expect for, uh, or we should look forward to in the future as you guys grow. Yes, so thanks for the opportunity to talk about the future. So as a company, we have reached a technical maturity for our manufacturing technology, which was invented by us. We have about uh, 100 patents, 52 have already been granted, and these are both in the manufacturing methodology, but also our applications. And I'll mention a couple of applications, but the phase where we're entering, we just announced about a week ago, we have signed a new lease that is helping us expand our manufacturing to a 53,000 square foot facility here in uh, Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Uh, we are very excited about that because we also announced in the same press release 
the acquisition of an incredible manufacturing tool that was built by Intel. It's a world first of its kind, roll-to-roll manufacturing tool capable of doing more than 100,000 units a month. So we have a plan to bring that tool as well as additional tools online to fulfill the demand that we expect and have, a growing demand across a number of uh, industries. We're also targeting the indium tin oxide replacement industry. So what is that? (laughs) Thank you, because uh, you lost (laughs) me there. Yeah. So indium is a rare earth metal, and it's a very unique metal because it is both transparent and conductive at the same time. So it is the world's most used transparent conductive film. So imagine a coating on glass or plastic. You can use it as a touchscreen. So any smartphone has ITO behind the glass. That's what enables the touch sensor capability. Or if you want to put it on, let's say, a a window to defog or de-ice, to use it basically as a transparent heater by just simply putting some power through it, some current through it. So it has a wide range of applications, including foldable phones, which is the next kind of thing in fashion. Solar cells have it as a contact. Think of a solar cell as a battery. So you have silicon in the middle. You have a top contact and a bottom contact in the most basic, an anode and a cathode. And those are made out of transparent materials to let the light through. But they're not that transparent. We created the world's most transparent and most conductive combined material. We branded it NanoWeb. You can check it out on our website, metamaterial.com. And basically, our technology is 50% more transparent than indium tin oxide and about five times more conductive. So in real numbers, we can get to 99% transparency. In conductivity numbers, we can get below one ohm per sheet. So that gives us a huge market potential. This market is worth about $5 billion today. It's growing at about 7.6% CAGR. And we are looking to address more than $1 billion market size by simply replacing ITO with NanoWeb. So it's an existing market application with an existing product replacement where we are coming in with something that not only is more transparent, more conductive, that is the performance side of things, but it has one more unique thing. Indium is a rare earth metal. We use copper, alumina, and silver, depending on the application. So we use either precious or commodity metals and we outperform the rare earth. And that is a very powerful value proposition. We do that at a fraction of the cost, and our targeted uh, gross margins are more than 50% on this kind of product offering. That is interesting, because you hear a lot about rare earth and the fact that they're predominantly controlled by, or they're mostly found in foreign jurisdictions access to them is perhaps difficult and costly. And so this sounds like a a competing application or a competing material that can do not only the same, but better. Indeed. And in fact, if we ever decided to use rare earth metals in our process, we could actually beat ourselves yet again. So using a rare earth metal in our process almost supercharges everything. But there's still even, even in that case, there's still a benefit. Our product offering, if you compare the apples to apples with the existing ITO in the indium tin oxide, would be about 10 times thinner. So our bill of materials would be smaller and we would still outperform the incumbent ITO. So there's all kinds of levels we can work with. Obviously, everybody wants to have a more sustainable future. So we are very excited to have a non-rare earth kind of a replacement for that. But in certain applications, for example, space or even aviation, where you have the need for metals not to melt you know, at a certain degree centigrade, 
well, silver is not going to cut it. You know, you need tungsten. You need something that will go up to 3,000 degrees. Well, there is a place for rare earth metals, but it doesn't have to be your smartphone that you carry in your pocket. If you can mm. avoid that, the world will have more abundance to do other higher-valued applications. Georgia, you know, I find the work that you're doing with metamaterials, it's just fascinating. And the names you've been able to partner up with are world-class and all of that. So I find that fascinating. And I want to say thanks for getting into how you got to where you are now. Because, I mean, there's, as I've learned here, a lot of money that can be accessed through grants and through different means that are non-equity and non-dilutive. So thanks for sharing that with us. As I aim to wrap up here, how can the listeners follow your work? And yeah, where can they get a hold of you? So if our listeners are interested um, to access some of our investor material, they can find it in our investor relations section on metamaterial.com. We are trading under MMAT, so double M-A-T. And my personal email is george.palikaras, my last name, at metamaterial.com. I'm happy to share more of my knowledge with your listeners. If they're interested to ask questions, I'm happy to connect on LinkedIn and, you know, help. I feel that Canada has an amazing ecosystem. It's unique. I have put this to the test globally, and I feel that if I can inspire some CEOs to take a little bit more risk, work with a few more universities, consider programs like MyTax or the NSERC Engage, or move to areas where economic development actually can give them an edge to create high-value, high-paying, and skilled jobs, I think they have a lot to gain, especially in this day and age where, you know, the future is so uncertain. George, I appreciate that. So uh, thank you very much for your time. I'll put all that information in the show notes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.